Welcome back to another episode of the Compete Clarity podcast and the second episode in our CI by Industry series. Joining us today is Mindy Regnell, who's representing competitive intelligence in e-commerce. Mindy heads up competitive and market intelligence at Postscript, an SMS marketing company, and has over seven years of experience in competitive intelligence and over 15 years experience in e-commerce as an industry. Today on the show, we discuss Mindy's process for going from reams of raw data to concentrated insights, why competitive shakeups make great opportunities for the adequately prepared, and of course, the entire process of how competitive intelligence works in the e-commerce industry. This is a long one, but Mindy had so much great stuff to share, we didn't want to cut a second. So grab yourself a nice beverage and join us in welcoming Mindy Regnell to the show. So you've been doing competitive intelligence for almost eight years now. Do you want to start by just taking us through that journey, what that looked like, how you got to where you are today, a bit background, really? Yeah, so I would say I probably had, I don't think there's a normal path on how you get to CI. Um, I come from a technical support background. That's where I started my career professionally. Um, I, I've been in e-commerce as an industry for gosh, 15 years now, one, I do not feel old enough to have been in an industry for 15 years, but here I am. Um, and so I started out doing tier one tech support, um, for like a WYSIWYG drag and drop, um, website builder, um, that also was like the largest reseller of an e-commerce platform called pro stores. If you've never heard of it before, it's because it's been dead for like nine years. Um, and so, um, it was, I actually thought it was a, a pretty great platform at the time. Um, I started running my own small business. I got really hands-on. I learned it really, really well. I switched around a few times at that first job, went from tier one tech support. I did quality assurance, call monitoring and coaching. I did sales. I did uh, a special project building out um, education and training on the e-commerce platform that we were a reseller of. Um, and then I did tier two uh, chat support and ultimately um, helped with a big migration when pro stores hit an end of life to move 7,000 stores onto a different platform. Um, I then followed and went to that different platform um, where I did tech support for a short period of time before working on a small team of engineers doing data migrations. And so we were basically taking people's data from like different e-commerce platforms and moving it over to our platform. So I had to learn basically like ETL extract, transform load. And so I learned all of the, I learned like 20 plus e-commerce platforms and like what they did and didn't do, what data they did and didn't have, what moved, what didn't. And so it just became really straightforward at that point to like know everything about them because I was already dealing with like 60% of it. And I'm inherently curious. Um, so then I started working with a product marketing team. I probably did that unofficially for probably two years. Um, then I convinced the product marketing team that like, yo, no, you really do need a CI person. It'll be a great opportunity. We'll, you know, put together messaging positioning. Um, and so I joined that team, did that for probably a two years, um, ran competitive intelligence, I owned win-loss, um, and I also did a lot of sales enablement. And then I got recruited to another company. I was there for almost a year. Um, I was going to build a CI program. It ended up not really working for the business model for that particular company. Um, it actually made more sense for them to just acquire competitors than to compete with them. Um, it was in the it was a technology company in the oil and gas industry. Um, and yet I was still following e-commerce the whole time. Uh, cause I loved it. And my old company or my previous company convinced me to come back. I was a CI manager there for a year and a half. And I also owned and ran analyst relations. Um, and then I uh, joined Postscript, which is, um, an SMS marketing company in the Shopify ecosystem. And, uh, they, um, basically was a very natural fit for me because it was very similar to what I had already been um, doing. Um, and I've built and run a CI program here, and I'm now the principal um, market intelligence um, manager for the company. So I cover both competitive intelligence and market intelligence. Um, candidly, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, one, it makes me less scary for customers to talk to me because they don't feel like they're going to talk to the CI person. Um, I don't know why people feel occasionally a little hesitant on that, probably because they think I'm like digging and snooping for information rather than like 
wanting to understand their journey and who they are. Um, and also like competitors don't operate in a vacuum. So keeping tabs on like market trends and what's happening in the space holistically um, is just really, really helpful for me. Um, and I've been a subject matter expert on Shopify for many years before I started at Postscript. So it was a really easy transition for me. Um, although I will say Shopify was a competitor <laughs> of my previous company. So it was a little awkward at times when I first started. Um, but uh, you know, that's, that's the nature of the beast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. But you mentioned that, um, early on in your career, you were kind of changing roles quite a lot, worked in tech support, worked in sales, um, and almost like everything in between. It, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, we've had on the guests on the show before who've definitely had a similar experience coming up. Um, I'm not sure whether that's, there's some causational correlation kind of issues going on there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's certainly an interesting one. I imagine it, Definitely helps a lot, though, in competitive intelligence, just to have experience, especially working with sales, um, even tech support. You know, I guess there are some customer success uh, elements of that as well. Um, if you're going to be working with these stakeholders later on, then, you know, if you've been in those teams and you understand their pain points, that can only help, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I was um, my my manager when I was in sales, uh, which was all like mostly inbound sales. I wasn't like, you know, cold calling or anything like that. Lots of respect for people that do that. That's a an intimidating job in a lot of ways. Um, but um, I was their poster child of like, this is what a technical salesperson looks like. And I sold it based on the fact that I knew it really, really well. Um, and it was funny because most people at the company I was at at the time, like didn't actually like pro stores. They thought that like tech support was afraid of supporting it. And they were afraid that if they sold it, people would cancel and they would get clawbacks. Um, and I was selling it and not getting clawbacks. And people were looking at me like, what the heck are you doing? Um, this isn't possible. And I was like, Oh, I take people through like 15 minutes. We go set up the things. I send them these directions and they never call tech support. And so they never canceled. Um, and so that's how I got like really into, um, a little bit of technical writing and like research and problem solving. I love to understand things like from the start to the end, like, how does it actually work? How do you go solve a specific use case? And I think that curiosity, like just was a natural blend into, working on a product marketing team and running competitive intelligence. Uh, since I've been doing CI, I've always been under the product marketing team umbrella, um, almost always as a team of one. As a team of one, cool. So I was gonna ask you that. So um, just for a bit of context for, for the listeners, this is the second episode in our CI by industry series. We're digging into how people are performing competitive intelligence in different industries, what's the same, what's different. Um, so actually just for, um, for people who might not know what a sort of SMS marketing platform is, um, give us just a little bit of a rundown of PostScript, if you don't mind what it does, um, what you guys do over there. Yeah. So we're, um, SMS is text messaging. Um, so when, uh, people running online stores, we focus solely on e-commerce, um, actually Shopify as a platform. So when merchants with a Shopify store are looking to market to their co customers, um, SMS is one way that they can do it. So customers always have to opt in to receive SMS marketing, just because I know people have like that initial, like, Ooh, I don't like getting random texts from random companies that's actually not compliant. Um, and so, um, <laughs> we, we market to people that choose to receive text message marketing. Um, we have a text, uh, an SMS marketing platform that people can use. It does abandoned cart triggers. You can send campaigns. Um, we're really big on conversational. Um, it fits into like the larger direction of where the, I think the industry is going, especially with iOS changes. Cool. Got you. Okay. Um, so some rapid fire questions, just for a bit of context around how you're doing competitive intelligence then. Um, how big is the team? You mentioned that, um, just a team of one, just you. Yep. Just me. Just you. Okay. Um, and, uh, so no one else in any kind of supporting role who kind of, um, takes some of the onus off sometimes any delegation or interplay. So I would say, um, I have, we have a, an amazing enablement team. Um, they help with a lot of the training, um, and kind of some of the, the process building and, um, will take some of the enablement off my plate. They're usually stretched pretty thin. So I often do a lot of my own enablement. Um, but it's, it's really nice actually to have a lot of support there just in terms of like, I can go to my head of enablement. Her name's Carly. She's awesome. And be like, Hey, here's my plan. 
Am I missing anything? Is there something I didn't think of? Are there questions that I should have ready that, um, you know, we didn't think about yet? Um, and then otherwise, I also, I've been covering a part of the platform for the product marketing team, um, which is why I know sending text messages to people that did not opt in is not compliant. I covered compliance. Um, and so, um, which is a really weird, um, like, space for SMS because it's it's actually um, there was a lot of reg regulations like four different governing bodies that impact text. And so now I, we just hired a product marketer who's going to take that off my off my plate. Um, but I am still working as a subject matter expert for a lot of it. Um, and it's just weird because I didn't think that that would be a large part of competitive but it is. Um, and it's because people want to get people to hop on the phone with them by like emailing them and being like, your program's not compliant. And they're often wrong, um, which is a pet peeve of mine. Um, and it's, it's just kind of like, you have to help sales reps understand like, Hey, these are the different levels of compliance. These top two are going to cost you money. Those are the ones you should be telling people like you did something not compliant. Um, and then the other two are like, your messages are very likely to get filtered and not delivered. And you're really just going to waste money. Um, not, you know, lawsuits that are $500 per message per subscriber, which is like millions of dollars for most companies, um, especially anybody with a program of scale. Sure. Um, and uh, okay. And finally, just for this kind of context around uh, which stakeholders are you serving primarily? Is there a lot of kind of enablement, as you mentioned, is it leadership or do you find yourself delivering Intel to just about everybody? But just about everybody. Um, I work really closely with the marketing team on content. I work really closely with sales. I'm actually involved in individual deals. Um, we have lots of Slack channels. I'm in most of them. Um, I work with our legal team really closely. Um, I'm a big believer in having a marketing claims process. So if you're going to make statements publicly about a competitor, you should be able to prove it. Um, and then uh, I also work very closely with leadership on strategy, messaging, narrative, and then obviously really closely with the product marketing team. And I've just recently started to work more closely with our customer success team on competitive messaging and positioning because they deal with customers that are looking to lead to from our mm -hmm. platform to a competitor. And it's actually like a very different conversation than the conversation a sales rep would be having. Um, and I think that's interesting, but it's really... Uh, forced me to like rethink some of my messaging and positioning because you know oftentimes like support is a great differentiator but it, it's a lot harder for a support person to be like they're not going to support you as well as I am and you're like yeah you're biased um you know so trying to like flip it on its head and think about it differently and in a way that comes across maybe a little bit less aggressive more consultative um, because you're not trying to disrupt the status quo you're actually trying to convince everybody that the status quo is quo. Um, and it's good. Don't mess with it. Don't rock the boat. <laughs> so do you find then serving, you know, that many different groups of stakeholders that your time is actually fairly evenly split between each one? Or do you find that um, certain groups take kind of the, the majority of your focus for a certain period of time and then it switches? Yeah. So I would say it's at CI in my experience has always been like heavily reactive it's just the nature of running a competitive intelligence program. If I could tell you when a competitor was going to make a change, um, I feel like I should be making all the money. Um, cause that's like, absolutely. Either you can get a sense of where a competitor is going, but one, you're making educated guesses and two timing is always subject to being off. Um, so it does have a tendency to feel like, um, if you've ever seen the movie Up, um, there's Doug and he's like, squirrel. Um, that feels like my life most days um, because I just don't know what's coming. And honestly, like I know that drives a lot of people nuts, but I love it. Um, it's a great context switching does not bother me at all. So I can switch topics on a dime um, and it doesn't like bog me down. Um, which I know it does for a lot of people, people on my team, on the product marketing team, don't love to necessarily like switch what they're thinking on and hard 180 pivot and be like, okay, now I'm thinking about this. Um, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever is fine. Um, I'm used to it at this point. <laughs> so I would say, um, addition, aside from like, it's very sporadic, the teams and who gets my time will vary 
depending on what's going on um, and kind of like what's heated up, what hasn't. I would say primarily my main stakeholder that I spend a lot of time with pretty much regardless of what's going on is sales. Mm, cool. Okay. You mentioned, um, you know, if, if you could predict when a competitor makes a move, you know, that will kind of be game over for everybody else, you know, and I think, you know, we hear the term market intelligence and, um, you know, you did say that that's kind of how you describe what you do uh, externally for some people. When I think about market intelligence, I kind of think about identifying emerging trends and sort of more macro factors like that. How much is that an element of what you do with CI in e-commerce versus the kind of reactive stuff, um, as you say? Yeah, so I would say um, I'm always keeping tabs on like several different trends. I use Google Alerts um, for all of this, which is kind of like drinking out of a fire hydrant the first time you do it. Um, so it takes a little bit of time to get used to it. I always tell people, don't start with like five Google Alerts, start with one or two, get used to it. Honestly, it took me like six months to feel like I was really fast and efficient at using Google alerts. And that's probably because I started with five. Um, <laughs> and now I've got like 25 Google alerts turned on and it doesn't phase me at all. Um, so that's how I keep track of some trends um, like iOS updates for SMS marketing is a really big deal. Um, and then, um, you know, just other articles that are happening about SMS marketing, SMS sales, um, specific competitors, different e-commerce platforms. So um, I'm always keeping tabs. Um, I would say when I have downtime or I've like hit something on a Google alert, I've read an article and I was like, Ooh, that's really interesting. Or somebody asked me a particular question. Like I'll go down the rabbit hole a little bit to be like, okay, I really want to understand, like, how do you make this work? Um, and so I do a lot of my market research then. Um, and honestly, like the conversations and the things that customers are asking about or trying to solve for are generally like really the underlying trend is there. Sometimes you just have to sit there and kind of like pull it apart. Um, you know, in e-commerce, more holistically headless is a trend that people talk about all the time, which sounds kind of convoluted if you don't know e-commerce um, and you just, I think at one point at a previous company, we made a joke about the headless horseman um, and it felt really on point. The idea of headless is actually using a different front end presentation layer and a different back end for running your e-commerce platform. So you're building your site is on Adobe Experience Manager, Bloomreach, Acquia, um, you know, Next.js, and then your your back end is powered by something like Shopify, Magento, Salesforce Commerce Cloud, BigCommerce, VTax. There's a wide variety of different options. And so when I was trying to understand headless in particular, I was really trying to understand like, okay, why am I hearing about it in EMEA way more than I'm hearing about it in the United States? Like it was so drastically different um, and then I started like really sitting there and thinking about it probably way more than was maybe necessary. Um, but I started like really looking at like, okay, but what did the competitive landscape look like in the U S and in EMEA and EMEA was largely predominated by open source e-commerce platforms. Um, and as a result, they always had developers. And so the transition from open source to headless, when you're already used to working with a team of developers is not a big logical leap in the United States. There was always open source platform, but there was a predominance of SaaS e-commerce platforms where it's, you know, you pay for the monthly subscription, you have the software, you don't necessarily need a developer. And so making that switch was a much larger leap because not all companies were used to having a developer working with an agency. And so trying to understand those trends, like sometimes you just have to like stop thinking about it the way you're trying to think about it. And just like, how do I come at this from a different angle? Um, and I do that a lot. And I think that's where market trends and CI tend to overlap a lot. Um, is there just different ways of looking at the same thing and your competitors can't operate in a vacuum, right? If I pay attention to what's happening on Shopify, because we work in the Shopify ecosystem, I will know what my competitors can and can't do because I know what's possible on Shopify. Um, and so that to me is like a great example of like just being able to step one step larger um, and think about it more holistically. Yeah. I mean, I think that's massively helpful because I think, you know, 
especially if someone's new to CI, they could probably start worrying about, well, I feel like what I'm doing is very reactive and I feel like I have to get in front of everything. And, you know, to hear from someone who's done it um, for, you know, a good seven, eight years that, you know, the, the, the trends will kind of reveal themselves in the analysis. If you've got the data and you spend enough time thinking about it, you, you, you will get to the trend um, eventually. And you mentioned Google alerts, you know, that image of like drinking from a fire hydrant and it can feel like way too much and be quite overwhelming. I think that's something people can definitely relate to as well. Um, but let's just get a little bit more into the details of um, sources in the early stages when you're gathering data. Um, so Google alerts is one. What other sources of data or Intel do you find yourself relying on more than others in uh, e-commerce? Yeah, so I would say um, I am a sucker for support documentation. Um, if I only had one resource at my disposal, I would almost always take support documentation, assuming it's updated and it actually is accurate. There are some platforms that have like no support documentation where it's clearly old. I wouldn't use that in that case. I'd probably take marketing collateral. Um, but reading their website, um, reading various uh, pieces of content that they're putting out, their blog posts, really digging into like the support documents because that's written for users. Nobody's trying to sell you something by the time you've hit help center documentation. Um, and in a perfect dream world, most platforms have a change log. And so a change log just tells you what change. Um, and so really at some point you've learned how a platform or a competitor works. And it's almost just like you're trying to stay in maintenance mode and change logs are amazing for maintenance law for, you know, um, maintenance mode. Cause you can just see what changes. And unless they do like a whole new version of their platform, which is exceedingly rare in this space. Um, and if they do, it's actually like a really amazing opportunity. Um, if you ask most people in e-commerce, um, Magento was one of the biggest e-commerce platforms around. Um, they had Magento One. It had a free open source version. They had a paid enterprise version. It actually got most of its functionality from the free version because it had a large community of developers. And so they redid it under like a new architecture um, and they had an end of life and people had to move from Magento 1 to Magento 2. Well, that was as much work as moving from Magento to Shopify, to Salesforce, to BigCommerce, to basically any other e-commerce platform out there. And the companies that were on it were like, this is like the greatest thing that ever happened um, because it's an easy conversation. There's a forced deadline. There's like a drop dead date. There's plenty of FUD. Um, so those sorts of like moments in the market are rare. Um, sometimes you can start reading the tea leaves and start predicting like, okay, I've been following this for, you know, a while. I know that this company got acquired by this other company. Generally their messaging and positioning goes in this direction. I suspect that at some point they're going to do X, Y, Z. Like I mentioned Magento. Um, I think there's going to be Magento 3. Um, and I think that Magento 3 could like fracture what's left of the ecosystem. They got acquired by Adobe. Um, and so Adobe has a very different want out of it than what the Magento community was largely built on. Um, and also e-commerce has just changed. So like knowing that and being able to start getting a sense of like, okay, I suspect A is going to happen and then B and then C and when you start like thinking through those various steps of like what you think might happen, you can really put yourself in the shoes of either your competitor or the merchant be like, okay, if this happens, who's going to freak out, right? Like I'll know from a signaling perspective that um, let's say Magento hands over the keys to Magento open source to the Magento association, which is a, basically like a unpaid group of people that just love Magento. Um, all know that that's a sign that there's going to be something big. Will most merchants notice or care? Probably not. Will developers start noticing and caring? Yes. Um, and then, you know, you think of, okay, what's the next thing? And then when are people going to react? What's the potential messaging? It's almost like playing a game of chess. Um, and you, it takes a really long time to get there. Like you're not going to be able to play a game of chess in your space um, unless you've either been in the space for a really long time and just switched to like a very, very similar company. But it normally takes you about a year 
and you get like a really solid idea, you know who your competitors are, you know how they think about the world, what their position is, and you can start predicting based on their position, what are they likely to do? Got you. I think that serves as a great reminder for people that, you know, shakeups, they're opportunities. You know, it's not always something to be afraid of, like, oh, this big competitive shakeup, let's all talk about everything that they've done. And it seems like so much is going to make big waves that we should be scared of. Um, it's actually something that, especially if you know your customers and you know the market, as you so clearly do, um, there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of fun. Like, I enjoy that aspect probably more than like most other things because I love the strategy of it. It's it's just you're trying to think ahead like, okay, if I make this claim about this competitor, what's their rebuttal? Can I rebuttal their rebuttal preemptively? Um just so that I can save myself the time in the future. And I know if it's a really good angle, like, can they undo it? When you write your own messaging, it's like making, you've made the sausage, right? You know where your strengths and weaknesses are. You know where people could attack you. And then what do you do with that information? Well, you shouldn't sit on it, right? Like I didn't actually mention product as like a core stakeholder when I was going through my long list, but that is actually another stakeholder I love to work with um, in terms of like, hey, here's what's happening. Here's what's changing. Here's what new features functionality a competitor has released. It's not to say that you're going to copy what a competitor is doing. It doesn't make sense in a lot of cases, right? You have to know who you are and does it fit with your larger strategic narrative, right? Uh, Postscript is really big on saying that we're all in on SMS. It means we're not going to go build an email marketing platform. Um, and you'll find a lot of companies in our space are doing that. Um, and so like when you see a competitor decide like, oh, I'm going to go do um, this or I'm going to add this and you know that like, okay, cool. Like I care because I'm going to have to position against it, but the product team isn't really going to care because we're not going to go build it. It's not an advantage for us because we view ourselves in the market differently. Um, and I think that can be helpful one, just for you in terms of like, how do you think about your positioning, your information, but also can help you in dealing with, you know, internal stakeholders that might feel really threatened by a big change, right? I remember before I was at Postscript, I would watch um, what was happening in the e-commerce space. Beautiful thing about e-commerce, lots of platforms have um, annual conferences and you can go read the summary or it's online or um, you know, people do like live streams of it and you can just watch it and you can see what they're talking about. The downside to that is that, you know, some stakeholders might think like, oh my God, they just announced this big thing. We don't have it. Is the sky falling? And so when you can start thinking ahead or let people know like, hey, I'm going to be watching Shopify's big annual conference. It goes two days. I'll have an update for you guys on this date. Don't panic. Like, it's all good. Give me a chance to like dig in, actually digest, dig into the areas where I think there's something that's happened because they're going to release a bunch of blog posts and they're going to give much more detail than what they said on stage. So when you help people understand your process and how you're thinking about it, it helps them feel more comfortable that maybe I didn't get the answer the second I heard that something changed. Um, and I'm actually much more likely to share information when something changed without having digested it as much. My leadership team, um, we've got a Slack channel. I share regular updates. We have conversations. Um, I've done that multiple times. Um, and at a previous company, I had a newsletter that I wrote um, that I sent out monthly of just like recapping what happened. Um, we do that differently here at um, Postscript. We actually have like all hands meetings for like our go-to-market team. Um, and I can give updates there and it's, everybody is watching it. We don't actually do a lot of email here. It's a little weird, um, but I kind of love it. <laughs> don't look at my number of Slack alerts though. That that's, that's a terrible thing. <laughs> um, yeah. I think there's another great lesson there for people um, in terms of, you know, handling your stakeholders. If you can get ahead of a known upcoming announcement and just kind of, put out that fire before it starts, so to speak, or protect against it, um, then, you know, the people that you're serving are going to, one, I guess, have so much more trust and faith in you um, as someone who's on it, you know, before maybe they even knew about it or while they were sort of signing up to the um, 
the online conference or whatever, they've already got a message in their inbox from you. Just knowing that you'll have an update ready to go uh, and they, it's not something that, that they need to worry about. Um, so going back to um, just a little bit more on the data gathering process, I know you were talking about um, Google Alerts and you were talking about reading up on product documentation, um, support docs primarily, change logs. Um, what does the split look like, uh, really, if there is one, I guess, um, between sort of manual versus automated for you in that process? So is it a 50-50 split um, in terms of like the brunt of where you get your information from? Is it just that you've automated some parts, but it's a mostly manual process and that you still have to sift through that? Um, what does that look like for you? I would say it's a, it's a fair bit of manual, but you get really good at like getting the gist of it faster and faster, right? The first time you do something, it's going to feel like you're climbing a mountain um, and it's going to take you a really long time. And then as you do it more and more, just like reading Google alerts, right? You learn, okay, I don't really care about stock updates or I don't really care about this or this just doesn't sound interesting. I already know how they view XYZ. Like you can start filtering that information out. For me, I probably come at things maybe a little bit differently than other folks you might meet in the CI space. I generally assume if I hear something from a sales rep, from a customer, um, from a partner or an agency, that they might be wrong, right? Unless they're like a premier partner and they've been working with the particular competitor for forever. Okay, I'll probably give those guys like the benefit of the doubt, but plenty of information, misinformation is out there, right? Our customers don't always know all of our features, um, much to the probably sadness of the product marketing team, right? It happens, especially when you make a lot of changes and you're constantly releasing new things. Um, which happens with all of my competitors as well. Like this space moves so much faster than e-commerce as a collective whole. Um, you know, there wouldn't be large updates that happened more than once or twice a year if I was looking at platforms, right? Your Shopify's, your Magento's, your Salesforce Commerce Clouds. You look at e-commerce, uh, you know, marketing software, you can have 10 updates in a month. Um, and so you just get really good at knowing like, okay, I understand this functionality. They've added this, does this matter? Um, and you can almost start doing it instinctually, but at first you're going to dig in, you're going to want to understand, okay, but does it actually work the way that it, you say it does, right? Like so often, so many things sound more impressive and that's just great marketing on the half of your competitors, right? It's on you to market your stuff in the same way that makes everything sound like it's earth shattering or being more strategic and spending your energy and focus on your marketing on the things that are actually a really big deal. And the trick there sometimes is just the level of engineering effort to build something and the impact to customers are not equal. You have to separate those out to understand your product releases. So that's where I work really closely with our product marketing team. When we um, bring something to market, it's a role I've done at multiple companies, right? You have a, a big launch. Almost always the first thing your salespeople is going to ask you is, okay, but what about our competitors? Do they do this? Do we do it better? Do they not do it? Like, where's my advantage? And so when you know that and you can start thinking preemptively, it's also a great way to get your foot in the door earlier. Like, hey, I want to be involved in like how you're thinking about this because maybe I have insights that you don't um, and you can help kind of deliver that value early on, make sure it fits in with your narrative. Like your overarching company narrative probably shouldn't be done in a bubble, right? You probably have multiple people that are inputting um, and the competitive angle to that is just one layer. Um, and so I like to think about that as I'm thinking about how do I go about researching, even if it's manual, I would rather it be manual and get really into the details. Most people aren't going to want the details. Um, they're going to want like the TLDR, here's the highlights. Um, and that's just a skill. Again, you build over time. You learn how to give people the TLDR and why should you care? And then do a leadership level. Should we do something about it? Like what should our next step be? Mm, got you. Okay. Um, so do you have any advice for people on kind of shortening that learning curve that you said sort of like the first time you go through all of that data, it's going to feel like climbing a mountain. Is there anything you know now that you kind of wish you'd known at the beginning that would have perhaps sped up that process for you? Or do you think it's just a matter of getting those reps in, so to speak, and just doing it a bunch of times until like, oh, okay, I know what I'm dealing with now. Yeah. So I would say the biggest thing is 
when you first get started, don't try to, you know, boil the ocean, right? Figure out who your most important competitors are, understand them first, understand your positioning. And then over time, you're going to bucket other competitors is like, oh yeah, well, they're really similar to X or they're really similar to Y. Go use those talking points. If they start coming up enough, we'll dig in deeper. Um, that will save you a ton of time and trying to find your quick wins is going to be how you help establish value and how you establish trust and start figuring out how to work with your sales team early on, right? They're going to be a great source of Intel. They're also going to be probably your primary consumers. Just from a practical, um, standpoint, where does all this data arrive for you? And, you know, presumably there's so much of it. Do you really have like a process for organizing it much, or is it a case that, um, it all kinds of arrives in one place and you're just so good now at kind of sifting through, um, severing the wheat from the chaff, if you like, and, and just getting to what's important that you don't really need to spend a lot of time managing the data in its raw state. You can kind of digest it as you go, if that makes sense. Yeah. So some data I digest raw on the fly. Other data I save. My Google Drive is insanely organized, like folders upon folders upon folders. Um and then um, I generally have like several key resources that I point people to like start here. And most of that lives in Guru. I don't actually write everything out in Guru, like I'll link to the deck or the battle card that I build out in like a Google Doc, um, things of that nature. Okay. So once you've got like all the data you need, then what kind of comes next? Like you mentioned, obviously, um, in terms of sources, you've got Google alerts coming in, you're looking at change logs, you're looking at support documentation. Once you've got all of that, you know, organized in your Google Drive, you've digested it. How do you, what does the analysis process look like, I guess? How do you go from that raw data or that kind of digested data to something that you can go ahead and deliver to stakeholder group X or Y? Yeah, so I would say like for a lot of people, what your process is is probably reflective of how you like to think. So like I've built out, you know, decks and things of that nature. And I actually just start by like almost writing down a talk track on a slide and then boiling that down into something that's more digestible. I write and I think very long form. Um, and then I work on shortening it down as much as humanly possible. Um, that just works really well for me. It's how my brain works. It's how I like to think. Um, and so um, often I'll have like a notepad or something like that. Sometimes I scribble things down. Oftentimes, like I just start writing um, or I'll hop on like a Zoom with somebody else that's maybe in a different department or on my team and kind of like, okay, I'm struggling with this particular thought. Can you like chat through this with me? Um, and just kind of almost like hone in your narrative um, or the positioning or like, hey, I've built this initial deck or this battle card. Who are the people that I should work with to make sure that they can read it, right? Don't rely only on your top sales reps to validate that your narrative sounds right or your battle card makes sense. You almost need a top sales rep and somebody who's brand spanking new, like a brand new BDR is probably the best place to test. Did I boil this down enough to like the simplest, easy to understand um, thought process. I love analogies. I also spend a lot of time like tinkering with analogies until I feel like I have the perfect analogy for the situation. Sometimes I'll spend a lot of time thinking about an analogy and be like, ah, oh, dang, everybody in headless uses the concept of Legos. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and stick with Legos. Um, cause there's not a better or different way to describe it. And actually that analogy might be something that because they're in e-commerce they've heard of before and it'll connect in like a very, Oh, modular equals Legos. Um, and so that can be really helpful. But when you think about analogies and you really start like building in on it, it paints a picture of something that people are really, really familiar with. Right. I told you I cover compliance for a, a while. I also cover deliverability um, and deliverability is is really the concept of how long did it take for your message to arrive? Right. There's a difference between did the message get there and how long did it take? Those are two separate concepts in our space. Um, did it get there as deliverability? How long did it take as throughput? And so most of the time you don't have to think about it. But every so often, there are times when everybody is sending text messages and it's like a highway, right? There are only so many lanes on the highway and most of the time it's fine. 
And then you start thinking about, well, the different types of numbers that different brands might be using have different number of lanes. Um, you know, like there are just going to be roads that are just going to get congested. It's like you, we, we jokingly call Black Friday, Cyber Monday, BFCM, our Super Bowl. Imagine leaving the parking lot in a Super Bowl. Yeah, that's not fun. You're going to be stuck. And it doesn't matter how good or how great your platform is if everybody is stuck. Um, so like helping people picture it in a way that it's something that they've, they're familiar with really helps. Something that comes up quite a lot, I think, is the kind of balance between quantitative and qualitative data. Uh, and, you know, everyone would like more quantitative data, but qualitative in competitive intelligence at least seems to be more or less the norm. You know, it's customer feedback, it's opinions from um, internal people, sales reps coming to you with, oh, well, I think I keep hearing this a lot. Um, do you do any kind of benchmarking or anything like that to kind of standardize or quantify the data you have in any way or in e-commerce, at least, does it sort of just not work like that? I would say there's definitely like some stats that and some things about the space that are generally quantifiable, right? Like the concept of ROI, um, you know, how much did something cost? How much did you make off of it? Um, ROAS, uh, your revenue from ad spend is what a lot of people will think about. Those sorts of things are very quantitative in nature. Um conversion rate, things like that. There are very tangible stats that maybe a merchant would look to, to, to tell success, um, that you can kind of try and like glean or, you know, there are industry benchmarks of like, Hey, here's what happened. Or our content team will put together like, Hey, here's the benchmarks of what we saw across 10,000 merchants. This is what good looks like. This is what great looks like. So that exists. I lean on that a little bit where I can, but candidly, like it's really hard for most things that I do um, to put it in a, in a like a purely um, quantitative lens, right? Narrative, how somebody is describing something, what resonates with customers. Um, probably the place where I do the most quantitative is we, I run our win-loss program. Um, I've run win-loss at most companies that I've been at. Um, and the current vendor that I use for running our interviews, just because it's, it's very time consuming for me to try and take those calls myself, I have done it. Um, they are very good about asking people at the end of an interview, like, Hey, what was the most important thing? And then what was secondary? And that allows them when they compile the numbers back to me that I used to present on to have a, a quantitative view of what we've heard. It's often a smaller sample size and you can kind of dig into the details of like the individual interviews and kind of get more specific than like the higher level trends. Sometimes the higher level trends don't feel useful. You're like, cool. How was this a positive? Um, at almost every company, right? Price. Price comes up as a thing that you deal with. And then, okay, well, that's nice. Like, was it that it was confusing? Was it the model? Was it, so you really have to like dig a little bit deeper, but knowing what was top of mind for customers in those interviews are really great. Um, I also really love using a third-party vendor because they're much more likely to tell that third-party vendor everything. Um, it's why you never would, I would never have a salesperson on a win-loss call because the customer might feel like they're gonna hurt feelings. You always position it as, even if I'm doing it right, I'm just here. We really care about providing you with the best possible experience. Um, part of how we do that is get really candid feedback from our customers. You will not hurt my feelings. Tell me anything and everything. Um, and that just helps people lower their walls. And the more those walls are lowered, the more information you can get. Um, and sometimes the numbers of like what a customer will say is the most important doesn't always necessarily match the reality of how they act. And that's really confusing. And, and I think that's probably part of why I think in our space, um, e-commerce is like a collective whole. You'll find that like surveys and things that you might do through like, um, you know, like you can work with industry analysts and e-commerce more holistically, you can do consumer, consumer surveys, right? Um, I've looked at some of those. And if you ask customers, like, is security important? They're always gonna say yes. Do their actions actually show you that security is important? It's a completely different story, right? I remember being a year after Magento hit an end of life on an open source product. Open source meaning you're self-hosting it. So as long as somebody is willing to host it, 
it's going to stay alive because you had the full code. It's not like a SaaS platform where they, if they say they're shutting off the lights on, you know, December 31st. So, you know, there's no recovering from that, right? It's just gone. You have no control to try and make it last longer. So you look at what happened with Magento, like a year later, there were still hundreds of thousands of merchants using a platform that hadn't had updates and security patches in a year. So like, yeah, okay. Every, um, you know, consumer survey, when you ask people is security, like super important to you, nobody's going to say no, but their actions are very different than what they're saying. And so I think that is a, an important piece to blend in. And I think that's obviously why qualitative data is important when you're just numbers by themselves. Don't tell you everything. I, I would love more numbers, right? I think we all would. Um, but it's, it's really hard, right? Like, um, Shopify is, did a benchmark or did a report and they're talking about their conversion being, you know, X percent better than every other platform out there, but they didn't share who did the report. They didn't give a lot of context. You don't know how they got to that number, right? Like I think Shopify is a really great checkout, but it's not the same type of checkout experience that you would see on a different platform because they're serving different types of merchants. Um, so like it's hard to compare apples to apples. And when you look at those numbers, I could take Shopify on their word or I could, you know, try and dig it and pull it apart a little bit. So I would say I'm probably more of a quantity or a qualitative person over quantitative in most cases. Sure. Uh, I think that's a really interesting answer. Like uh, it kind of actually answers something tangentially related that I was going to ask you about. Um, how do you make sure the data you get is kind of clean? That tip on, you know, comparing the customer's words with their actions is such a great one, um, especially win loss and things like that. You do hear that recommendation, you know, use a third party to do it because, you know, you will get more kind of objective and honest answers. Um, you know, it's just, you know, human nature, I guess. It's easier to tell somebody, you know, all the gory details if you don't feel like you're going to hurt their feelings. But then how do you know that they understand their own motivations and, and stuff like that? It's a tricky one to pull out um, and pull apart. But yeah, I think that's a great tip. You know, compare what you see and log them actually doing with with what they're saying um, to really get to the core of that. Yeah, and, that, and that's why I feel like I've chatted with other CI people and I know like some platforms will make it so you can like link to a gong call or you can link to like you can pull in a snippet from like your win loss into a battle card. I, I generally wouldn't do that um, because I don't assume that they're right. Um, right. Like I was reading reading a win loss interview yesterday and a customer was talking about a competitor and they're like, oh, yeah, they have X feature and Postscript doesn't. Well, they were wrong. <laughs> we have that feature. They didn't know about it. And the other competitor did not. Um, and then they ended up going to a third platform. And so you're just kind of like pulling it apart and trying to understand just because somebody said something doesn't mean they were right. And that's why I have a process for validating and proving a claim. I've worked at companies that have gone public. Um, and most companies, when they go public, are much more sensitive about what they say um, in marketing. And so it's a good muscle to start flexing before you get there. Because the last thing you want to do is be at a company that's going public and realizing like, oh, shoot, I don't, I can't tell you where I got that number from, right? Or maybe it's a number that's really old and you didn't update it. Like you have to know and understand and agree internally. Often legal is probably the best guide point of like, well, how far back is a stack good, right? It's 2023, do we think 2019 is relevant enough, right? How much has the industry changed? Um, like I've, I've seen stats that talk about like mobile conversion. Well, if you looked at mobile conversion, you know, 10 years ago, most platforms didn't have, you know, responsive themes. They, you had to go do extra work to make it responsive, right? So if you were bleeding edge and did something sooner, you might see really great results but five years later, those results aren't the same because everybody does the same thing and everybody has a much better mobile checkout or, um, you know, those sorts of like changes in the space and in the industry make a really big difference. And so sometimes the amount of time that has passed makes certain claims just candidly no longer valid. Right. And you have to know and agree internally on do you think about that especially if you're planning to go public at some point do it beforehand 
um, because it is not fun um, to think about going back in and trying to like clean up old data or try and find old references. Like I keep a folder. I have a sheet that keeps track of all my claims. I write everything back. Um, I either download the page that I found it on as a PDF or I use Wayback Machine, um, which is just archiving the internet, which is amazing. I love Wayback Machine. It's great. Sometimes go look at your competitors, go see how far back you can go. What did they look like originally? Because if nothing else, it's just fun. Um, because we all started somewhere, right? The most polished companies had really basic websites at some point. Um, I, I don't know. That's just me. I find it. I, I like to get the joy out of it. I guess I'm really competitive in what I do here. I'm not a competitive person generally outside of work. Um, it's a weird conundrum that I think about. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess, how I think about like gathering and saving some of that information for like future reference and why I don't immediately assume that somebody's right. It's the same thing as if a sales rep tells me something, right? I'm probably going to, in the back of my head, know, okay, how long has the sales rep been here? Who do they generally talk to? Have they been right before? Um, you know, Could they tell you who they heard it from? Is that particular source likely to be relevant? And I will always double check. Sometimes I can't. Right. There are just some things that you're not going to have access to. And you've got to rely on those third party like reviews, G2 crowd, um, trust radius, um, the perpetual rabbit hole that is Twitter. Um, I don't know about all spaces, but e-commerce merchants love to complain on Twitter. Um, Twitter is like a real hot spot for my space um, in a way that is. I guess I have a Twitter account solely for um, following industry news. I don't actually use Twitter as a regular individual. Um, and so, yeah, just like validating as much as possible and knowing when you start seeing a change, right? A competitor is rolling out new pricing. You're going to get a sense of like, okay, wait, wait, wait. I saw something I haven't seen before. How many times do I see it before you're like, it's changing, right? Most of their customers are on contracts. It's going to happen when the contract renews. You can start piecing together and finding the tipping point. Yeah, like the more of a finger on the pulse you have, um, the easier it is to recognize kind of like when there's a change in the air brewing. Um, Millie, I'm conscious of time. Um, I know we've kind of touched on it um, throughout the conversation so far, working with stakeholders. If you don't mind, let's just take a few minutes to kind of rattle through working with stakeholders in e-commerce. I know you mentioned you work with kind of just about everybody in the business. Let's um, let's dig into deliverables quickly. Kind of core deliverables, perhaps ones that you can envision other people working in e-commerce, if they've just come in and they're new, what should they focus on first? Um, and what are kind of some challenges around putting those deliverables together in a way that's actually going to be end of the day useful for uh, this, the set of stakeholders that you're serving? Yeah, so I would say, um... It varies depending on the, the nature of your company, how big they are, um, and what they feel is most important. Always get feedback early on from like your sales leadership and your team, your manager, who is the most important and start there. Because um, it's really easy to, to get distracted because there's always going to be this one-off competitor that you hear about and you're like, okay, um, maybe like six months passes and you're like, I've heard about them twice. Um, I don't really care. Um, I don't, I don't have time to care about them unless it's like a huge deal. Um, and there's a lot of money on the line, right? So start by figuring out who the top one to two, maybe three, I wouldn't go more than three when you're, for, when you're getting your like solid foundation and then find out like what format works really well for that company. At previous companies, I did a full like battle card, right? We were still in the office. I worked at 100% remote companies. You can tell by my office setup, um, we don't have physical battle cards, right? I did at previous companies. So I built a battle card. Um, at this company, like we don't really do that. A full Google doc maybe isn't the best way for people to digest it. What they really wanted to understand was like five reasons to believe, right? Give me five reasons why we're better than X competitor. Five reasons why we're better than Y competitor. And those reasons candidly will overlap and they should. At some point, your company is going to have five to 10 things that makes them unique. 
And when you think about your positioning about a competitor against a competitor, you're going to pick and choose three to five that make the most sense and say, here's why we're better than this platform. Here's why we're better than this competitor. And the, the overlap is good, right? If you say you're amazing at compliance and deliverability, I covered that area here at Postscript. So we are, um, I can validate that 1000%. It's something we do really, really well. I know which competitors in my space are really good at it and which ones aren't. I'm not going to put five reasons why we're better and put compliance on there if I know that other platform's also good at it. But I'm going to put it probably on three or four other competitors, right? Because not everybody in our space does it as well. Or So you start with those five reasons why. And then I like to think about what are the little bullet points that I can give you to back that up, right? If I say, for example we're better at compliance. I should be able to tell you why, right? We have built-in guardrails um, that help make sure that you're following all of the various regulations. Um, We have a tool that automatically removes known litigators in the space. We, um, you know, have a very close relationship with Twilio. Twilio is really big with the carriers. We're a trusted provider. That makes a difference. So all of those things together help a sales rep say why. Because so often, if you just give them the value prop on its own, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to be long, um, which is partially a thing for me. I have a tendency to get really, really detailed. So I have to force myself to like pare it down as much as possible and then think about who needs that information, right? BDR probably needs the highest level. Sales rep, probably a lot more. Sales engineer, they want the full kit and caboodle. Um, Same often with like your product team. They want to know all the things. Um, so knowing who's consuming it and how to help them do it, do I, did I have like multiple versions of battle cards at previous companies? No, not really. Um, I just trained people on like, okay, one, always put the shortest version of information up at the top so that people can get the TLDR and those that want to keep reading can keep reading. Um, but that's really helpful. I do a lot of Loom videos, recorded trainings, things like that. One thing I started doing recently was making a short version, a long version. You can tell I like to talk. So my short version will still be, you know, five, 10 minutes on a particular topic because there are very specific nuanced details that you have to understand to be able to have this conversation. Um, And then like, I'll make a longer one for somebody who's maybe less familiar. They're new. They're struggling against that competitor. And I'll spend more time going over more specific details Um, and helping people with that can be really great. Sometimes like More often than not, I record the long version first. Um, And then I think about like, what's the shorter version that I can pair this down to? Some people it's the opposite, like whichever way your brain works, do that. But think about the simplest version of your messaging that you can get people really early. And sometimes like one really great way to do that is to think about like, what are the questions that a customer is gonna ask? And find the answers to those, right? You'll find the differences and you'll start knowing like, oh, hey, this competitor, doesn't do this very well, or this sales rep always brings up this topic. Why? It's probably because a competitor doesn't do it very well. So you can start kind of sifting your way through it. Um, But starting small and not trying to, you know, solve all of the problems, right? I started with a very simple deck and it became a much more detailed resource and asset and training and narrative over time. Awesome. Well, Mindy, I feel like we've covered uh, an awful lot there, and I'm sure that's uh, massively helpful for everybody. Um, Certainly insightful for me listening to you talk about competitive intelligence, and and I know it will be for everyone in the audience. Um, If people want to follow you somewhere um, or hear more from you, where can they do that? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, Mindy Regnell. If you know me, and I did not actually mention this, although you can see, and I'm sure other people can't, My wall is covered with fabric. Um, I am a hardcore quilter. Um, I occasionally talk about it on LinkedIn. Uh, I have an Instagram. That's where other people follow me, but it has nothing to do with competitive intelligence. If you happen to like nerdy fabric and nerdy quilts, I am nerdy threads quilting on Instagram. (laughs) That's great. Um, Okay, Mindy, thank you so much once again. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Compete Clarity podcast. Before you go, I've got a question for you. In today's job market, differentiation is really important. 
interview processes today have four, five, or even more stages, and proving your worth is getting harder all the time. How valuable would it be to you to be able to bypass all of that in the eyes of the recruiter because they're already familiar with your work? Well, listen, we want to help you by offering you the means to do just that. We'll work with you to quickly adapt your work into SEO-optimized articles, ghost-written guides, and podcast episodes just like this one. It's never been easier to differentiate yourself, so why not start today? Sound interesting? Just send an email with sign me up in the subject line to contribute at competitiveintelligencealliance.io. That's contribute at competitiveintelligencealliance.io.